Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. So I'm here with Astro Teller and Danielle Teller. And um, first off, you guys, before I fully introduce you, you talk about one of my most favorite subjects, which is the importance and sometimes the ludicrousness, if I said that right, on how we as a society treat marriage. And um, I'm just going to introduce you really quickly. Astro, you're in charge of Google X, which is like the driverless car, Google Glass, and a whole bunch of other things. Danielle, You've been uh, uh, an MD. You've been a professor at Harvard. Now you're in Palo Alto raising four kids. And you both just wrote this excellent book about marriage called Sacred Cows. You've also done a TEDx uh, talk about the sacred cows of marriage. How did you even come onto this topic? Like, why were you sort of, uh, you know, almost disappointed in the way the marriage vows are structured in our society? Well, it started from our own personal experience, and it, it wasn't just around uh, the way marriage vows are structured, but we're both divorced. What? And- you should be oh. ashamed of yourselves. I will. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, so, uh, I'm know, divorced too, by the way. Yes, yeah, so you should be ashamed too. Uh, <laughs> I so, am. So, so like most people, we didn't really think a whole lot about this stuff before we got divorced, because you don't think when you get married that divorce is in your future. And um, so, you know, divorce was something that happened to other people and that, I don't know, I didn't really have much of an opinion about. But when we, it's an incredibly painful process, as you know. And uh, when we were both in the midst of our own divorces, we were a little obsessed with the topic and could talk of almost nothing else. Well, what, 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 what are the painful aspects of divorce? Because I agree with you, but I think people don't fully understand it because I think sometimes when people get married, they figure, oh, if it doesn't work out, I can always get divorced. Yeah. I mean, so our society doesn't see it that way. Obviously our society has created a set of boogeymen to try to prevent you from getting divorced. And just to be clear, there are a, a whole set of reasons why one what might want to avoid divorce for good reasons. So divorce is financially complicated. It's emotionally complicated, not only for yourselves, but children, the people around you. Um, it just eats up a couple of years of your life. If you could possibly be happy with the person you're with, better to stay with them. But society also has a set of boogeymen, these kind of fake reasons to try to scare people into staying married. And these are statements, these social narratives, which we call sacred cows, like if you get divorced, you are being selfish. Or 
if you get divorced, you by definition can't keep your commitments. And these narratives really don't hold up to scrutiny. And yet we all have internalized them and used them to create fear and shame in on the part of anyone considering divorce so they won't get divorced. Well, you know, Ashwin, I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's interesting you say that about uh, the commitments part. I remember one time reading uh, – so I used to be in the hedge fund business, and I remember one time reading about an investor who said he would not invest any money with a hedge fund manager who was divorced because the, the presumption is the hedge fund manager probably cheated on their wife, and if they cheat on their wife, they might cheat with my money. So I'm not going to invest with anyone divorced. And it, it, there is this kind of culture of shame around divorce and commitment and so on. Right. So I, let me make the, exactly the opposite argument. I, I think that that's a pretty beautiful description of why our society is sort of twisted around the axle. I probably I would be more interested in leaving my money with a hedge fund manager who had been divorced because the essence of wisdom is knowing when to stick with something because it's worth going through the hard times for it. And also knowing when it's not worth it to put good money after bad, or in the case of marriage, good time after bad. Um, I'm totally getting back into the hedge fund business now. This is going to be my marketing slogan. If you and your significant other really are meant to be together, need to be together, and are just in a rough patch, by all means, find a way to struggle through it and get to a better place. But if you're really not meant to be together, why go to your graves struggling and unhappy just because our society has this narrative that you're a better person if you do that? But but you guys, this is this is a gray area because you can't really know. Like I remember with with my first wife, we we didn't know. I mean, we were arguing all the time. We were obviously unhappy. We were seeking couples therapy and finally even the couples therapist and this is rare he basically said you know what there's nothing more i can do for you guys like you should just split up Hmm. that is unusual yeah because it's hard to it but it's hard to know we didn't know we were trying right i i think so the book that we wrote sacred cows is not a how-to book about how to stay married nor is it a book about how to get divorced or even how to tell whether you're the right sort of person to do one or the other. The book is only about being able to investigate whether your marriage is working for you without carrying along with you the guilt, the fear, the shame that society unfairly burdens people with as they consider whether their marriage is working for them. Oh, let's use use a specific example. I mentioned selfishness. So there's this trope, this narrative in our society that you're a selfish person if you get divorced and you're selfless if you try to cling to your spouse as they try to leave. But it's not that simple. It's pretty easy to come up with couples in our own experiences, and I'm sure in your own experience, where it's been more complicated, where someone wants to stay in the marriage for financial reasons, they're scared to leave, or one of them wants to have children and the other one doesn't. Maybe the person who doesn't want to have children is being selfish by staying in the marriage, thereby preventing their spouse from having the child-filled life that they hope for. So it just doesn't hold up to even the, the thinnest level of scrutiny. Right. But so, so these are all – this is like an intellectual argument and everyone's going to agree. But as you guys know, when you're right in the middle of it, there's – 
I'll just, this is almost like a therapy session for me. So like I was too ashamed to tell any of my friends or even my business partners that I was getting a divorce and I have two kids. I was scared to death. I was never going to see my kids again. Um, and then, and then I wasn't going to be a good father to them because time magazine, you, you all know time magazine has that cover story every year, how children are ruined by divorce. And you, you address the stats on that in your book, but just irrationally, I thought I was going to ruin my kids by having a divorce. Right. Let's see. Those are perfect examples of the sacred cows at work. I think to get back to your question about what makes divorce painful, much of the pain of divorce is unavoidable because it's just, I mean, breaking up any long-term relationship is hard, but someone that you're so entwined with and with whom you shared so much of your life that is just going to be painful. And I think there's, it is complicated for kids and it, it certainly can be very painful for children. And as a parent, causing your children pain is really, really difficult. So those are the things I, I think are, that are, those are just parts of divorce that are hard and part of what makes divorce suck. But the things that you're talking about, the shame, the feeling that you can't talk to your friends or colleagues about it, um, or this this false idea that your children will be ruined or that you will be a less good parent, those are just social constructs. And it's, it adds completely unnecessary pain to the process. Those are just... just uh, like a bonus pain that nobody needs. <laughs> right, you're right. It's like it's like uh, that saying that the first arrow, which is divorce, will wound you, but it's the second arrow, which are all these societal things around it. That's what will actually kill you. Right. right? And that's what I was feeling. And and so how do you even understanding the intellectual arguments? How do I? How how would I have? This was like in 2007, 2008. How how would I have overcome? these societal constructs so that I, I wouldn't have felt the shame or the fear. I think, well, Astro was going to say something too, but what I was going to say is I, our hope is that just by looking at it in an intellectual way removes much of that uh, guilt and so on. I mean, it did for us. I think just examining whether there is truth in a lot of these social beliefs made them go away. Just like looking at the monster, you realize it's not real. So I think that logic and intellect are very powerful tools in that sort of a situation. Let, let me use an example. So we talk about the contract of marriage. This is sort of a companion to the hedge fund thing we were just talking about. So we all know as business people that the whole point of a contract is to pre-negotiate friction. And when we look at the contract of marriage that almost all of us sign with our spouse when we get married, it's a laughably uh, ambiguous contract. It, it does not function in the way that a contract is supposed to function. We make a promise that is, I'll love you forever, that none of us can actually hold to. And we all know, even at the time, that that's really not something that is in our control to promise. So if you then, at the end of your marriage, are feeling horrible and you go back and you – one of the things you're feeling horrible about, let's say I, – I, I did. I bet you did too – is this issue of commitment and that I'm failing in this commitment that I made. To go back and ask yourself dispassionately, what exactly did we promise each other? 
Was that a reasonable thing to promise? It doesn't mean that you will then instantly stop being sad that your marriage is over if it needs to be over. But at least you can be less hard on yourself about being a failure as a commitment keeper to realize that the commitment you made was really not one either of you had any control over. In this case, how you were going to feel in the future. Right, because the the future is inherently unpredictable. Like you have no – nobody has any way to predict just about anything. And this is proven over and over again in every area of society. So then it it doesn't take away the sadness, but it can help to take away the shame to look at that dispassionately to – Danielle said, to go through the intellectual process of saying, where are these feelings coming from? How much of this did I really blow it on? And how much of this is something from outside myself? The society is actually putting pressure on me (laughs) through no fault of my own. Because to the extent it's the second one, you can let some of it go. It's hard, but hopefully people can. Well, how did did you guys, like given – You've obviously put a lot of thought into this. When you two met, what did you do differently? First of all, how did you two meet? So we uh, we met back in 2001 in Pittsburgh through a friend of Astro's. I rented a house in Pittsburgh. My then-husband, I had just gotten married, and my then-husband was uh, still working and living in Boston, and my mentor had moved to Pittsburgh and I needed a place to stay. And so I rented this house from Sebastian Thrun, uh, who was going to Stanford on sabbatical and we hit it off, Sebastian and I. And so he invited me and my then husband to come for dinner before they left for California. And he also invited Astro and his then wife. And, uh, so that oh my was God. Like- so it was like a double date with the spouses. That's how you met. Yeah. Yep. Romantic, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, and-, and we were friends for, for many, many years. And we had uh, one of the things that cemented the friendship of our families was that we had children at the same time. So we spent a lot of time together as families. And it, the situation that we're now in, somewhat complicated, but also somewhat wonderful. I've known my stepdaughters since the day they were born. And Danielle has known her stepkids since the day they were born. And our step, our, our children have known each other since the day they were born. So they've really grown up together pretty intimately. And so in that sense, while family blending is complicated, um, it's been pretty great for the kids in some ways, too. Do they? So you're like the Brady Bunch a little bit. Like, did they feel like brothers and sisters? I mean, do they feel that way now? Yeah, they, they definitely do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they fight like brothers and sisters too, but they do refer to each other now as brothers and sisters. They usually just don't even bother with the step in front of uh, describing each other. And and when you were planning out your marriage vows, how did these thoughts about marriage come into play? <laughs> so I pause. <laughs> Well, we need to plead guilty. I mean, the truth is that we're incredibly in love with each other. And so our marriage vows sounded like just the kind of um, romantic trash, you know, (laughs) bad contract work that I just said that we shouldn't be doing because that's how we feel. I, I think the only saving grace is that we talk to each other both before and after the wedding 
and agreed with each other that while at the wedding, what we were saying is that we were going to love each other forever, that we understood that that was not a promise to each other. It was our aspirations and our predictions. That is, I hope I love you forever. And as far as I can tell, I'm going to love you forever. But we wouldn't hold each other now to any sort of moral weight to how that you know, Danielle feels in the future. If she stops loving me, that doesn't make her a bad person. Presumably, you know, when, the day she got married, she wanted to love me forever and she's going to try to love me forever in as much as it's in her control. But if she can't, I should be as sad for her as I, I am for me, since presumably it feels good for her to be in love. And and what about, um, obviously, uh, you guys have solved the kids issue, but when you were first getting divorced... Did you feel like, and you know, and again, when I first considered divorce, it was like basically like that day Time Magazine had their article, like, if you want your kids to be drug addicts forever, then just get divorced. <laughs> so like, how do you, what What are the actual stats on this? Like, are kids' lives ruined if they're in a divorce? No. I mean, the, sh- the short answer is no. Um, there's a longer answer, which is that we don't actually really understand what effect divorce has long-term on children. I think there's no question that it hurts children and um, different children to different degrees. I mean, I think for our kids, it was not incredibly painful, but that was probably because of our situation. I certainly know people who have been incredibly hurt by their parents' divorces but uh, but in terms of whether the children are going to be less successful in life, less happy with who they are, uh, sort of less centered, there, there's no there's no evidence. And the the real reason for that is it's it's an almost impossible study to undertake, trying to control for all of the other things that affect how an adult turns out. Um, is almost impossible relative to divorce because you can't you you can't compare happily married parents to parents who are divorced. You can't control for a lot of the reasons that people end up divorced. You know, mental illness or substance abuse or things like that are all going to affect a child a childhood and and how a kid turns out. So there are just so many factors to control for that can't be controlled for, that there, there aren't any studies. And I think this idea that our society has that children are ruined by divorce comes from a desire for us to believe that. And so there are some incredibly poorly done studies that suggest that kids might do worse in school, say. And people glom on to that and present that as evidence. And over time, it had, I think all of us have just absorbed this message to the point where we just think it's, it's just, uh, it's true. that. And the only way to do a real study, because even the bad studies show almost no difference. So the only way to do a real study would be to actually randomize people. But getting together a few thousand people and telling all of them that half of them would be randomized into the group where they were forced to stay married, whether they loved each other or not. And then the other half would be randomized, whether they loved each other or not, into the group that had to get divorced immediately. And then you would study the kids for the next 10 or 20 years. I mean, it's just not a study that anyone would sign up for. So 
we have so the society just doesn't know and the chances are good that it has some positive and some negative effects on kids in a systemic way but it's probably a mixture of good and bad things and it's totally washed out by all the other things like how wealthy your parents are whether you were born with a genetic propensity for alcoholism or impulse control problems or 10,000 other things any one of which is at least as important as your parents' marital status. Well, well, I'll tell you the way I managed to at least at first rationalize it, which was that, A, much better for them to not grow up with parents who were constantly arguing, like we were just constantly arguing in front of them, and B, um, and this is to, to some extent more true, um, I spend a lot more quality time with them as opposed to I, – I spend less quantity time with them, but I spend more quality time with them. I've never heard a divorced person say anything but that. Yeah. Even the you know dad who spends one weekend a month with kids, I've still heard them say that thing because typically those dads weren't even having the equivalent of one quality weekend a month with their kids when they were married. That's very true. So, so – mm-hmm. Well, you know, the other thing is interesting is uh, a lot of people are worried about the financial aspects. Like it's very difficult to get uh, divorced when all your assets are are tied together. I'll tell you I'll tell you one thing I did, which I haven't seen anybody else do, which is we moved all of our assets into a corporation that we set up and we jointly owned. And so we jointly own. We still have the assets 50 50 um, and then we got divorced. So 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 my my total divorce cost a thousand dollars to do from beginning to end. Hmm. So so that was kind of that was kind of how I de- dealt with the financial aspect. At least at first, then it got a little trickier. But for for the first few years, that that worked and it allowed me to move on with my life. It sounds very clean. That's uh, very it sounds, smart. Well, it sounds very clean at first. It also does sound like there's a bit of a kicking the can down the road aspect to it where you still had to later do some divvying up, right? Yes, exactly. So it took about three years later, uh, we sort of dealt with the more intricacies of it, particularly as I got, you know, remarried and things got complicated and so on. So so it was a kicking the can down the road, but it allowed it to happen without, uh, it allowed the divorce to happen without us fixating too much on the financial aspects right at the moment when we were in the most pain. Yeah. So I was going to ask, you feel that having kicked the can down the road, you didn't deal with this stuff when everything was so raw. So that right, was, smart. yeah. Raw is a great way to put it because that was, you know, as you probably know, in a divorce, everything is so raw. It's like, it's like a, it's like a bed sore. It's like the bone is exposed. It's so raw. And and that's where the pain is. Yeah. I think, too, you know, one of the things I didn't know about divorce until I went through it is um, I think one of the big challenges is going from this incredibly intimate relationship where you share everything and know everything about the other person to a business relationship, essentially. And I feel now that the faster you can get there, the less pain for everyone. And what you did makes a lot of sense because that probably allowed you to get into that mindset much quicker than if you had been arguing over divvying things up. Yeah, exactly. I mean, basically I wrote the entire agreement up. 
Uh, we just hired a lawyer to essentially uh, shepherd it through the judici- judicial system. The, the judge had never even seen anything like this, so it took a while. And uh, and then it was done. You should write a book. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna write. I'll I'll, I'll write the uh, I'll write a chapter in your next book in your sequel. So, oh. so how, how was it writing this book together? Like, did you deal with a lot of issues in your own marriage while writing this? Uh, another pregnant pause. So the <laughs> truth is that we brainstormed the book for almost two years heavily together, got to the place where there were probably a hundred pages of kind of semi-inspired notes. Uh, and then after that, Danielle did what, started at 80% of the work and by the end was really running at about 98% of the work. Uh, so I think it worked really well, but it worked really well partly because where there was going to have been conflict, I just, she did it. Right. Well, and I, you know, the book was born <laughs> of all of these obsessive conversations that we were going to be having anyway about what, does this mean? What, what does marriage really mean? Why do, does our society feel this way about divorce? So the obsessive conversations came first and the book was a bit of a sort of, I don't know, side effect <laughs> of well, those conversations. So I think we would have worked on quote unquote, worked on those issues anyway, even if we hadn't written the book. It's interesting because I mean, some people think about this and some people don't, but I sort of feel marriage is one of the most important decisions you can make in your life because your spouse is who's going to support you through the ups and downs, through your career, through your creative ideas when everyone else thinks you're crazy. So it's an incredibly important decision. But why were you guys kind of, even though you were both divorced, why were you obsessively talking about divorce enough to want to write a book about it? Well, there's just this long tail. I mean, maybe you didn't have this experience because it sounds like you were very smart in the way you went about. Oh, oh no, I was very stupid before I was very smart, but go ahead. So, so there's, there's just a, a very, very long tail of, of painful things that need to be dealt with after a divorce. It's so it, it wasn't as though we went to the judge and got these papers and then it was done. We had all of this these ongoing issues, not just with our exes, but with all the other people in our lives. And, um, you know, you probably experienced this too, but when you're considering divorce, that you get pushback from friends and family. And it's, it's very, it's very difficult. It's, It's very challenging. And so I think our way of dealing with the pain and, and difficulty was to, to talk about it. Because I, I, I think that, um, you know, I, I said this in our TEDx talk, but I was diagnosed with breast cancer a year or two, a couple of years after my divorce. And um, it, it, I mean, that was a terrible experience, but uh, people assume that that's much worse than divorce. And my, my experience was no. In fact, having something like cancer everybody supports you. It's very straightforward what you need to do, but having to make what our society casts as these moral decisions in divorce and having to struggle your way through that, I think is much, much more painful. Yeah. It's interesting because I I saw that in the Ted talk and you guys mentioned how it's almost, it's when someone gets sick, everybody else 
sort of knows what to do. Um, if, if they're comfortable with, with themselves and dealing with the other person's sickness, they know to offer help. They know to offer solace and to be there for you. But with divorce, nobody knows what to do. I mean, Louis C.K. even makes a joke about it. He says, you know, no two happy, happily married people have ever gotten divorced ever. <laughs> and that everybody makes the mistake of saying, oh, I'm so sorry to hear about your divorce, when in fact you should be congratulating the people who got divorced. So okay. so he has a whole bit on this that, that society has it completely reversed. And you and you and you this is your the whole point of your book really that that your your it's the book's sacred cows, the truth about divorce and marriage, and your your first cow is the holy cow. So so maybe describe what that what that means. The holy cow is the issue of commitment. So for each of the cows, they represent a topic, a narrative in society that society uses to sort of bludgeon us with. So the holy cow is the issue of commitment. And that is the implication that if you are starting your divorce, you are quitting on your commitment. That means you're a quitter. No one will ever trust you again. You shouldn't even trust you again. You're a bad person. Run back to your marriage. Say you're sorry. And it's not too late. You can still be a good person if you just stick with your commitment, no matter how miserable it turns out to make you. That's kind of the underlying narrative in our society. And so to to bring up things like what I did before about the contract of marriage and say, wait, wait, before we beat people up about whether they're quitting on their commitments, let's look at what exactly it was that they're committing to or that they did commit to. And before we throw those stones at them and to, just to pick on a different cow to give you a sense, one of the other cows is the defective cow. So the defective cow is the implication, which is very strong in our society, that it's your job and your spouse's job to make your marriage work. So if you're not happy in your marriage, it's in some underlying way that our society just won't let go of, you are broken. If you can't find your way back to happiness, it must be possible, says society, because you got married. You stood up there and said, like, this was the best thing ever on the day you got married. So if you're not happy now, either you were lying then, well, I'm sure you weren't lying, or you must have lost your way, and you're not even willing to do the hard work, apparently, of struggling your way back to this happy place. Well, you know, and, it's not only the, the vows, but it's the entire infrastructure around marriage. So the fact that, you know, uh, uh, an engagement ring is two months' salary, the fact that a wedding itself could be the equivalent of the, the down payment on three houses. So, so your whole family is there. So, so you become shamed in front of uh, your entire family if later on you get divorced because you're saying these vows in front of hundreds of people. So, so the infrastructure of society itself uh, makes you feel defective if you can't work it out. Well, and not by accident. Our entire society is structured to create just that shame. That's why we invite all these people to weddings, why there's so much pressure to do that, is exactly to cement the pressure to stay married. But let me play the devil's advocate for a second because it's only a recent phenomena that divorce even really exists. And that's because society has expanded out in a lot of ways. Uh, there's a lot more freedom of sexuality. There's a lot more 
uh, kind of financial mobility. Uh, you know, for evolutionary reasons, in part, marriage has been a strong part of mammal behavior for millions of years. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I think marriage is really an economic institution historically and um, in, a, in a way of creating stability around uh, procreation, basically. And inheritance. And in, yeah, yeah, well, that's the economic yeah. side. So I think it's a, it's a way of building wealth and, uh, and maintaining wealth. And I, I think that the, the reason we're confused, the sort of central reason why we're so confused now is because in the last century, the reason people get married has completely changed, but we haven't shed our old ideas about divorce. So in order for society to be stable from an economic standpoint and also from a, you know, raising children standpoint, it used to be important to shame people into staying married. I think it made a lot of sense for society to do that. But today, most Americans say that they are getting married for love. And this is perhaps, I mean, I think Stephanie Kuntz, who's an expert in marriage, says this is the only time in human history that she's identified where people have done this, have married primarily for love. That's just across societies and throughout all of human history that has not been the reason for marriage. And, um, and we all think this is great and we celebrate it. It's one of the reasons why people have weddings that are three down payments on their house, because we, we love this idea of love. It's uh, it's romantic. It's, it's wonderful. We tell stories about it and we watch movies about it and so on. But then when the love isn't there, we don't have a good answer because we don't want to think about the fact that love may not last forever or that we may not be able to promise love, that we might not be able to say, I, I promise 20 years from now, I'm still going to love you. That's not a conversation our society wants to have. So we, we have one story going into marriage, which is it's all about love. But then we have a completely different story when the love is gone. No, no, no. Marriage isn't all about love. It's, it's about commitment. It's about the family and, and so on and so forth. And this hypocrisy, which Danielle just laid out, is one of the other sacred cows, which we call the one true cow. That is, that right up to the moment before you say I do at the wedding, true love exists, and you should do whatever it takes, even ditching someone at the altar to go chase down your true love. But right after you get married, true love doesn't exist anymore. If you didn't don't happen to have it with the person you're married to, then it doesn't exist by definition um, from our society. Because that's what it, that hypocrisy is required in order for it to continue both to push people into marriage, but then to push them to stay married once they're there. Right. And you have, you have the great example in the book of all the movies where uh, the one true love breaks up the wedding right at the last minute so that true happiness can reign forever. But if he was a day late, then it's all over. Exactly. Um, but It's a rational worldview that marriage should not be about love. Or about happiness. I think there's there are still people in America who feel that way, and I think that's a very reasonable way to feel. I think what bothers us is that is the hypocrisy and the fact that we're not, as a society, being honest and really sort of looking at our attitudes logically. Right. It can't be about love on the way in, but about society on the way out. Right. Well, consistent. (laughs) When when is so? So two questions. 
um, when is somebody defective? Like, like in the sense that, let's say someone's married and divorced six times. Are they defective then? Or can we just say marriage is really, should, should be um, sort of marked down to dating status as opposed to this huge legal uh, status? Yeah, like clearly it's okay for people to date many people, but once you're married, you're defective if you're divorced. So, but, but is there, is there a point when there's some, something else to be looked at here? Well, I mean, we're all defective in some ways, right? I, we all have our neuroses and deficiencies. And there are people who are not um, good at marriage. I mean, there are people who have problems with anger management, who have problem, who have personality disorders, who have, you know, frank uh, mental disorders, who are alcoholics. There are a lot of reasons that can make someone hard to live with that, that can crop up time and time again in one relationship after another. Um, so, I mean, I guess in that sense, yeah, sometimes it is somebody's fault that they can't hold a marriage together. But I, I guess I guess it's all a spectrum, right? Well, although someone could just like being married over and over again. Like, again, it like, could be like dating. Like, we, we hold marriage as a different institution than dating, but should it really be different? I also think that our attitudes about marriage still are tied to a time when people lived till they were 45 or on average. And so if they got married in their late teens or early 20s, one good long marriage, which lasted their entire lives, might take them 25 years. Now it's possible to have two, even three 25-year-long marriages in one's life. And so to think that someone would have three marriages and be defective also misses the point about how much longer we're living and how much that potentially changes that we have very different phases in our lives. That There are people who've had three really successful, happy, long marriages and wouldn't take any of them back. I don't think those people are necessarily defective. Well, well, what are the actual stats? Like, you know, I, I hear different stats everywhere. How many people get divorced? Well, no, nobody's totally clear on that because it depends on how you measure divorce, whether you're looking at just a slice through this year, how many people are getting married versus how many are divorced, whether you're looking at a cohort that you follow over time um, to see how long the marriages last. So <laughs> there, there aren't su super great data, but I think everybody agrees that it's, it is close to half of marriages that yeah. that statistic that you hear no matter how you measure it it it's somewhere above 40 percent of mm. marriages and less than 50 percent interestingly the divorce rate is dropping it's just that the marriage rate is dropping also so uh the the really big news in our society over the last 25 or 30 years is not the divorce rate the really big difference is how many people aren't getting married at all or how much later in life they're getting married or how and the percentage of children born out of wedlock, not primarily because of divorce, but because of a lack of marriage. And that's changing society way more than any subtle changes in the divorce rate over the last 25 years. Well, I think also, again, it's related. Again, my biggest fear was the effect on my children. That was by far my biggest fear. And then I would say my second biggest fear was 
um, just the complications and madness of divorce. You know, just the the, the, the whole craziness that I wouldn't. I would. It was almost like I would. I felt I was disconnected from everything I knew when I was going through a divorce, and I was afraid of that disconnection. Um, but overcoming those sort of uh, fear factors, I think, makes divorce easier. So if you're saying, for instance, not not easier, but a more, uh, I don't know how to put it without glorifying divorce, but uh, dealing with the kid issue solves a lot of problems in divorce. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I was not as worried, I think, as a lot of people about what effect divorce would have on my kids. But I think it's because in medical school, I was exposed some to parenting theory. And I think most experts seem to agree that how a person turns out in life is not very much related to how that person is parented beyond uh, the absence of neglect or abuse. So if you abuse or neglect your child, then that can certainly affect how they will turn out as an adult. Well, what's neglect? Don't provide love. So if you don't, if you don't provide love to your child, if your child grows up feeling unloved, that can have an effect on the child, certainly. And if you abuse them mentally or physically, that can have an effect. But as long as no matter how you know, chaotic your household is, no matter how flaky you might be as a parent, whether you, you know, take them to violin lessons or don't, all of those things don't seem to really have much of an impact on how people turn out. It's really if you love your kid and you don't abuse them, they're kind of going to grow up to be who they're going to grow up to be is the prevailing theory. And so when you look at it that way, as long whether you're living with their other parent or not, as long as neither parent is abusing them and as long as both parents are loving them, they're, they're just going to be who they're going to be. Uh, you were saying, James, that you – went through this process, you were really worried about these maybe two major things for you that were different for Danielle, but you had these two things and that as you got over them, you could see afterwards, wow, I could have gone through that with less fear and less maybe complexity. One yeah. of you were asking earlier why we wrote this book. And part of it is because not it's not just what we went through, but because I think both of our marriages, our first marriages had been seen as sort of paragons of happy homes by a lot of people, then when we were going through this, a lot of friends who were then considering their marriages or then going through their divorces came to talk to us about the things they were afraid of. And our experiences, having gone through divorce, having kind of deconstructed some of the nonsense that we thought caused us to have unreasonable levels of anxiety or fear or shame, when we then coached them just verbally on the phone or in person and they felt better, we thought, you know, there's got to be a way to systematize this. There's got to be a way to capture some of the essence of what we keep telling our friends because it's obviously helping them. And there is no book or movie or something that they can see, which will sort of talk them off the metaphorical ledge. And, and that was part of what we were trying to do is just exactly in the way that you said that you had these specific things to tell people, look, we don't know if you should get married or you should get divorced, but in your particular case, if what you're panicked about is the kids, divorce might make kids worse off. That's possible. There's just no evidence one way or the other. So you can just leave that on the side because and go through this without that 
um, monkey on your back. I, I think it was that. And then there's the judgment. What's everybody going to think of me? Like you were saying, everybody thought you guys, you know, your, your, your own particular, uh, you and your spouses or ex-spouses were all great. And so suddenly everybody's opinion of you was going to have to be adjusted and you would have to be, you would have to deal with that. A big issue also is judgment. So, so you both were, uh, in couple situations that were like the paragons of marriage and you, you know, people's opinions of you are going to be adjusted and you have to deal with that. So that, that often deters people from a divorce. Well, and I, I think it's your judgment of yourself. I, I certainly went through a lot of shame and self doubt and self flagellation felt like a terrible person for a long time. And it wasn't really until we started to step back and look more logically at the whole situation that I thought, well, wait a second. Why do I think I'm such a bad person? Because I got divorced. Um, but that was a lot of unnecessary pain. I mean, I judged myself much more harshly than other people around me judged me. Which most yeah. people do. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. In fact, I think not only ought the person who is starting the divorce, did they often deserve, not always, but often deserve to go through the process with a lot less shame. But the truth is that quite often the person who's starting the divorce, by taking on that societal pressure on themselves, is actually being very brave and somewhat selfless. Typically, by the time a divorce is happening, the, the couple needs not to be together. And whoever is starting it is going to take all the social censure, but they're both going to get the benefit of not being married anymore to someone they shouldn't be married to. And yet we fail to put our arm collectively around the person who starts a divorce and say, hey, I know how hard what you're doing is. Thanks for making the world a little bit more the way it needs to be. And I realize that this is, feels like an amputation right now. But it actually is for the best, not only for you, but for your spouse. And that, that's not always true, but I think it's true a lot more than half the time. Well, I, I really agree, and I really hope people uh, benefit from hearing this. We could have talked all, all day long about driverless cars, but I think this is much more important for society. Although driverless cars and, and, and Nest and things like that could be important, too. Uh, I know this conversation would have helped me in, in 2001 instead of 2009. So uh, I'm glad we had it. But let me ask you a question. Why didn't we know each other in Pittsburgh? When did you guys get to Pittsburgh? Uh, I got to Pittsburgh in 1993. And I finished my pit, my PhD in 1998. So, so I was there in 1994. And, uh, I moved out of Pittsburgh, and I was in the computer science department. I moved out of Pittsburgh in August 1994. Um, you did your undergrad or your PhD there? I, w I went to grad school there, and then I was thrown out in 1991. And I worked in the Center for Machine Translation until 1994. With Jaime Carbonell? Yeah, yeah. Oh, so my uh, advisor was Manuela, who had Jaime as her advisor. Sure, I know Manuela. So I don't know. I guess we just missed each other, but One degree of we were over, we overlapped by a year. 
Yeah, no, and uh, I think Merrick first, who was one of my closest friends, introduced us like years ago. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I actually did some work after I ran a series of companies in Pittsburgh after I uh, finished graduate school, and uh, Merrick was running ES Gear at the time. You remember that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, my one of my companies helped did some consulting and basically helped uh, sort of co-found that company and build that company for him. So so Merrick um, was you know the 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 dean of students who actually wrote the letter throwing me out of graduate school, um, citing that I needed to be more mature in order to come back. Like they left the door open. And then he became my student. I became his uh, – he wanted to learn how to play better chess, so I was uh, his chess instructor. <laughs> Did you throw him out at, at some point? Just uh... Well, I would never let him win a game, that's for sure. But uh, I think I was a good instructor. He, he did improve. Uh, and, Danielle, when did you move to Pittsburgh? In 2000. Okay, so we would never have intersected there. I, I was never back. Okay. So, but, and so that's when you guys met. And then when did you guys get married? We got married uh, two years and change ago here in California. Wow. Well, congratulations. And I'm so glad you wrote this book. I'm going to read the title once more so people can buy it. Um, I just got out of my Kindle. Hold on a second. Uh, Sacred Cows, The Truth About Divorce and Marriage, Danielle Teller and Astro Teller. And Astro, see, I told you we wouldn't have to talk about Google X at all. Maybe we will at some other point. But I'm really glad you guys came on the podcast. Uh, So I I really appreciate it. Thanks for doing this with us, James. Great to meet you. Yeah, great to meet you. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. For more from James, check out The James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.